0: Church, you can go and grab your Bibles and uh, open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've been here, you know we've been studying through Ecclesiastes for several months now. And we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 together today. Let's bow together for a word of prayer before we get started. Lord, thank you for what we just sang about. Lord, all the great reminders. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your patience toward us. Thank you, Lord, that... Your mercy that you've shown us through Christ is more, it's greater than our sins, it's deeper than our sorrows. Thank you, Lord, that in spite of what our circumstances say, though, though sorrow, need, or death be mine, thank you, Lord, that we know we're not forsaken. And Lord, we know we're not forsaken because we have a Savior who was forsaken in our place So thank you for Christ's sacrifice for us. Thank you for what that assures us of. Thank you, Lord, for the way your love for us in Christ steadies our hearts for the way it gives us assurance even during our trials and afflictions. And Lord, I pray that you'd work through your word now this morning. Lord, we come hungry for living bread. We come thirsty for your water. We pray, Lord, that you would feed us and strengthen us and correct us and help us And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, church, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And just as a reminder, if you haven't been here, Ecclesiastes is written by the third king of Israel, Solomon. And Solomon came to the throne during a time of, uh, I guess, relative peace and prosperity in Israel. There were no enemies beating against the walls, trying to get in, so he's not having to fight off opponents. There were no internal rebellions that Solomon was having to constantly put down. And so because of that, Solomon was able to spend a lot of time on his own personal projects. And so Solomon built massive gardens and rebuilt cities and built massive palaces and strengthened the economy of Israel. And in the process, Solomon made a fortune, which meant that Solomon was uniquely positioned to try everything that this world has to offer. And boy, did he ever. Solomon tried wine. He threw himself into the party lifestyle. Solomon tried work. He poured himself into his career, and he was very successful at it. Solomon tried women. He had a a harem of a 1,000 women who were there to meet his every need. And yet, none of it satisfied him. So Solomon went through this big portion of his life Where he largely cut God out of the equation and he looked for something in this world that would satisfy him. But do you remember his conclusion? Solomon's conclusion is that everything under the sun is vanity. Meaning that anything you you try to find joy and satisfaction and peace and purpose in, disconnected from God, it is fleeting, it's temporary. And it's very shallow. Or or to say it another way, there is nothing you can live your life for disconnected from God that will give you lasting joy and satisfaction. And that's really the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. So what Solomon does is he tries to help us find the path that life is all about. He tries to help us see the path where life can be found. By first showing us all the paths where life most certainly cannot be found. And so path after path, Solomon shows us in this world, leads to a dead end. So he's highlighting the emptiness of life apart from God. But it's important that that's not the only thing that Solomon does. So so there's a lot of this book that is almost suffocatingly depressing. Solomon talks about all the vanity and all the emptiness over and over and over But you'll remember that in the middle of all of that, he occasionally brings us up for a breath of fresh air. We're in the middle of describing the emptiness of life apart from God. Solomon will remind us that with God, there is real joy to be had in life. With God, there is real purpose and real meaning. So apart from God, life is empty. It's vapid. But with God, under the fear of God, Solomon wants us to see that life can be lived with a different perspective. With God, life can be lived with a real, deep, rich joy. And that's going to come up again in our text this morning. And just to help you see what a consistent theme that is, I want you to see how often in this book, Solomon comes back to the theme that there is real joy to be had in life. Go back to chapter 2. This is the first one of these breaths of fresh air that he gave us in this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Look down at verse 24. Solomon says, Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Do you hear that? Eat and drink and enjoy your life and recognize that every day you live and every good thing you enjoy comes to you as a gift from God. And he's going to keep repeating that. Look ahead to chapter 3. Look at verses 12 and 13. Solomon says, I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all of his labor. It is the gift of God. Notice the pairing. Rejoice and recognize that life is a gift from God. Look ahead to chapter 5. Just reading a few of these. Go to verse 18. Solomon says, Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink, and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him. For it is his heritage. Go to chapter 8. We looked at this verse last week. Verse 15. Solomon writes, So I commended enjoyment, because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. You see how he keeps emphasizing that God is the one who gives us life. So as long as you try to live your life disconnected from God, you'll miss the real joy of it. It would be like trying to scuba dive disconnected from your air hose. But when you're connected to God through faith in Jesus, you can live life as it was meant to be. Now that's not to say that if you're connected to God through faith in Christ, that life is going to be easy. It's not going to be. Solomon is going to make that point again in chapter 9, that life is filled with difficulties and life is filled with perplexities. So life is not going to be easy, but it can be meaningful. It can be rich. It can be joyful. And I want you to notice how that comes out this morning. So we're going to be in chapter 9 this morning. We're going to focus our attention on the first 12 verses of it. And follow along with me as I read all of it with you. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 12. Solomon writes, For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare, or it could be translated, examine, explain it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that's done under the sun. That one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the Son of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But for him who is joined to all the living, there's hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they'll die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God's already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which He's given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. For the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. There's a lot going on there. We're going to try to look at it under four main points. Okay, here's the first one. Number one, rest in God's sovereignty. And I use that word rest intentionally. Don't just believe that God is sovereign. Don't just agree that God is sovereign. Rest in God's sovereignty. And of course when we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that God reigns as king. He not only created this world, He sustains this world, and He meticulously governs. This world, Or to say it another way, God is the one who dug the channel that the river of time flows through. So God rules over every twist and turn of it. And we don't hear that as Christians and bristle. We don't hear that as Christians and go, dang, I'm not in control. No, we hear that as Christians and we rest. It's what we just sang about a few minutes ago. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whate'er He does and follow where He guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. Look at how Solomon says it at the beginning of verse 1. He says, For I considered all this in my heart. So that I could declare it, or your translation might say, so that I could explain it or examine it. So what is, what is the all this that Solomon is pondering in his heart? Well, all the things that he just talked about at the end of chapter 8. you remember from last week? The last part of chapter 8 is Solomon describing all the enigmas of life. So often life doesn't go the way we would have planned it. Life doesn't go the way we would have expected it to go. Just as an example, look up at verse 14 in chapter 8. Here's one of the enigmas. Solomon says, There's a vanity which occurs on earth that there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. Do you see what Solomon's saying? He's looking at life and he's going, So often... Wicked people get the life you would think the righteous would get. And righteous people end up with the life you think the wicked would get. And so Solomon's saying, life so often doesn't make sense. And the reason for that is because we tend to think that life should work like a grand computer system. Like if you just input the right code, as long as you give the system all the right input, you'll get the right output. It's the idea that Job's friends had in the book of Job, right? What was their view of life? Well, their understanding was that as long as you love and obey God, then everything will go well for you in your life. It will be nothing but blessing. And on the other hand, they thought if you disobey God, then life will only and always go bad for you. And so when things started going badly in Job's life, what did they assume? They assume that Job must have some terrible secret sins in his life. But Solomon realizes that's not the case. He actually says here that it's all in the hand of God. He's just emphasizing that life is in God's hands. Do you remember singing that song with your kids? I don't know if you still sing it. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got you and me brother in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And he guides it according to his will. Solomon even says, notice the phrase, that the righteous and the wise are in God's hands. Meaning, it doesn't matter how much wisdom you accrue. It doesn't matter how much righteousness you think you attain. You can never regain control of your life. There's nothing you can do to manipulate the system make sure you hold on to that because that's the message that prosperity preachers are constantly trying to convince you of right you'll hear this message all the time on TV that if if you will just have enough faith and check enough religious boxes you're guaranteed to have this sort of life check all the right boxes and you're guaranteed to have an income of at least two hundred thousand dollars a year and live in your dream home and your kids will never get sick It's the idea that Christianity is about finding the right formula. Christianity is about checking the boxes so you get all the things you want out of a good, easy life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is trusting in Jesus as the one who died in your place and rose from the dead. And so you trust not just your eternity into His hands, you trust your life in His hands. And you rest there. That's the first point. Rest in God's sovereignty. Here's the second one. Number two. I was never quite sure how to word this point. I'll have to explain it. Resist the temptation to interpret your circumstances. Look at what he says at the end of verse 1. Solomon writes, People know neither love nor hatred... By anything they see before them, all things come alike to all. Notice he says, you don't know love or hatred by what you see. What's the love or hatred he's talking about? What seems to be the, the love or hatred of God? And what Solomon is saying is, don't try to discern God's disposition towards you based on your momentary circumstances. Stop stop thinking that you can read the tea leaves of your life, that you can evaluate your circumstances and use your circumstances to decide God's attitude toward you. Because the tendency then would be to think, hey, if everything's going well, God must be really happy with me. As long as things are going well in my life, look how much God loves me. But then when trouble strikes, the tendency is to think, why is God angry at me? When hardship strikes, the tendency is to think, why does God hate me now? And Solomon is just reminding us that you and I are not equipped to interpret our circumstances. If you try to shape your view of God based on your momentary circumstances, you will end up with a disfigured view of God. Because you have no idea what all God's up to in your circumstances. So we don't interpret God through our circumstances, we interpret God through His revelation. God has told us who He is. I don't have to read the tea leaves. God's told us what He's like. He's told us what His attitude is toward His people. Maybe one great example is the end of Romans 8, right? Neither death nor life. Nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we don't try to understand God based on our circumstances. It's the opposite. We try to to view our circumstances based on what we know is true about God. Yeah, this is hard, but I know God is good. This is hard, but I know God promised He is working everything toward my good. He intends to use this to make me more like Jesus so I'm going to trust Him. It's the last line of that hymn we sang earlier. Did did you notice how the fourth verse of Whatever My God Ordains Is Right, it's like a declaration. It is a statement of faith. That fourth verse says, Whatever My God Ordains Is Right, here shall my stand be taken. You see what we're doing there? We're declaring our faith. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. You see why that's so important? Because you're going to face circumstances in your life where you're going to feel like maybe you have been forsaken. If you just look at your circumstances and rely on your churning emotions, you're going to convince yourself God has abandoned you. That God must not care. And what Solomon is saying is, is that's a lie. If you try to discern God's disposition towards you based on your circumstances, you will misunderstand God. Let me give you a couple examples of this from the Bible. Think of the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Okay, so Pharaoh is the king of Egypt. Egypt is one of the most prominent nations in the world at the time. So Pharaoh has... More wealth and more power than just about any man on the face of the earth. So, for a man to have such wonderful circumstances as Pharaoh, he must have been highly favored by God, right? Because we know from the Bible, God raises up leaders and God tears down leaders. So for God to elevate Pharaoh, Pharaoh must have really been loved and favored by God, right? Now listen to how God explains Pharaoh's elevation. Exodus chapter 9. This is God explaining Pharaoh's position to Moses. Verse 16, Exodus 9, 16. God says to Moses, But indeed for this purpose, this is speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, Indeed for this purpose I have raised you, Pharaoh, up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Get this. So God says, through Moses to Pharaoh, I have exalted you and put you in these favorable circumstances because I'm going to show my power. How was God going to show His power in Pharaoh? You know the story? He was going to show His power in Pharaoh through judgment. God was going to unleash these ten devastating plagues on Egypt and on Pharaoh's household. Eventually, Pharaoh's army was going to be swallowed up by the Red Sea. And so God is saying, He put Pharaoh on this pedestal on the world stage so that the whole world could see his downfall. And so that the whole world would see the terror of God's judgment demonstrated on Pharaoh and the whole world would tremble before God. So, if you looked at Pharaoh before that and you saw a man with wealth and in the lap of luxury and with power and if you assumed that those circumstances meant he was highly loved and favored by God, would that assumption be right or wrong? That assumption would be wrong. Or let's look at from the other side. Imagine walking into the city of Jerusalem on the day before Passover. And as you're coming into the city, you get caught up in a very emotional crowd and kind of swept along. And you decide you're going to make your way through this crowd to figure out what's going on. And so you weave your way through these people and you quickly realize this crowd's there because there's a crucifixion going on. And there are three men being crucified. But clearly everyone's ire is focused on the man on the middle cross. He's the one they're hurling all the insults at. He's the one who has clearly already been put through the ringer. His body is torn to shreds from what was, must have been a fierce beating. And you watch as this man is being hung, killed naked in front of a crowd, crucified, the greatest insult imaginable on the eve of such a holy day as Passover. And everybody knows that the Bible says to have your body publicly displayed in death like that is the sign of someone being under the curse of God. And so based on those circumstances, what would you assume God the Father's attitude is toward that man on that middle cross? And you would assume he must be really displeased with that man on that middle cross. Would you be right or wrong? What is the father's attitude toward his son? He said it earlier in the Gospels, didn't he? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You mean to tell me someone who God is pleased with can experience circumstances like that? He wasn't hanging on that cross for his sins against God. He was hanging on that cross for my sins against God. It it was my sin that held him there, we sing, until it was accomplished. But if you looked at that circumstance, you would assume that meant he's displeasing God. And you would be wrong. So if my circumstances are not a reliable gauge of God's disposition toward me... What is? Listen, as a believer, I do not look at my circumstances to evaluate God's disposition. I look to the cross to know God's disposition. God God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus took the sins of His people on His shoulders and bore the wrath we deserve. So, so that the entirety of the cup of judgment that should be handed to you to drink was taken by Jesus and He drank every last drop of it. So if your trust is in Jesus, the cross is the final word about God's disposition towards you. If your trust is in Jesus, the cross is the ultimate final assurance of how God views you. Back to Romans 8. You remember the way Paul says it is, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the point he makes right before that is, if you belong to Jesus, listen to me. If you belong to Christ, if your faith is in Christ, God is permanently, irrevocably for you. So stop thinking you can read the tea leaves of your life circumstances and figure out what that means about God's attitude toward you. We discern God's attitude by what He has revealed. We see God's disposition toward His people fully at the cross. Now, let me say this quickly. There's also a reverse to that. If your trust is not in Christ, if you've determined you're going to live your life for yourself, don't be so foolish as to interpret favorable circumstances as the sign that God's pleased with you. Don't interpret good circumstances as the sign that God must be happy with you. No, your circumstances are not a reliable guide. Ezekiel says, God is angry with the wicked every day. So be careful thinking your momentary circumstances are reliable grounds to evaluate God. That's the second point. Can't determine love or hatred, Solomon says, by what we see. Number three, we'll start covering some more ground. Recognize the universality of, and unpredictability of death. Verse 2, Solomon says, All things come alike to all. And here's an example. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. What's the one event that Solomon is saying happens to all? He's talked about it before. In the same language. The one event that happens to all is death. Whether you're righteous or wicked, you are going to die. Margaret Sanger, the wicked founder of Planned Parenthood, died. But so did Lottie Moon, the great Baptist missionary. Religious people die and irreligious people die. Um, Hugh Hefner died, but so did Jonathan Edwards. So the same event happens to all. He even says the man who takes an oath. That means the man who pledges his life and lives loyally to God, in the end, dies just like the man who does his best to ignore God. So here's what that means. No matter what you do, no matter how you live, you are going to die. So you better prepare yourself for that reality. I just mentioned Jonathan Edwards' name. When Jonathan Edwards was 19 years old, I think I've mentioned these before, but when Edwards was 19 years old, he wrote out a series of commitments that he was pledging to live his life by. Resolutions. He ended up writing 70 of them that he was committing to live his life by so that his life would be pleasing to God. And he read through those resolutions every week of his life. And listen to what he wrote in resolution number 9. Edwards wrote, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. And here's what strikes me about that. He was 19 when he wrote that. And as a 19-year-old, he's going, I'm going, I'm pledging to regularly consider my own death. Isn't that kind of morbid? No, the Bible would actually say it's good. Think of the psalmist in Psalm 90 saying, Lord, teach me to number my days. We should pray that. Lord, help me remember that my days are numbered. Or maybe to give an illustration, it's like like there is a countdown clock ticking over the head of every person in the room. You can't see it. I can't see it. But there's a countdown clock right now ticking over your head. And one day it's going to hit all zeros. And your life on this earth is going to be over. But of course that won't be the end. Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. You're going to die and then you are going to give an account of your life to the God who gave you life. And Solomon's saying it's unavoidable. Not only unavoidable, unpredictable. Skip down to verse 11. He's going to return to this theme of unpredictability of life. He says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift... Nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. Solomon said, "Do you see how unpredictable life is? I mean, you would think the fastest person would always win the race, but it doesn't go that way. You would think the the football team with the most five star athletes would win every football game. It doesn't go. In fact, that's one of the reasons we like watching sports in the first place." We like upsets. We like to root for the underdog. We just came this past week through the 30-something anniversary of one of the biggest sports upsets in history when this journeyman boxer who was a 42-to-1 underdog, Buster Douglas, knocked out Mike Tyson. And Solomon's saying that's, that's how all of life is. The fastest, the smartest, the most skilled doesn't always come out on top. So, so your strength, your intelligence, your skill is no guarantee of how life's going to turn out for you. There, There will be lots of times in life where you find yourself in a place you never dreamed of. And there will be times in life when you find yourself in a place that you never dreamed of. It's unpredictable. And he expands on that in verse 12. Look at what he says in verse 12. Focusing in then on the unpredictability of death. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. You see how he's describing the unpredictability of death? He describes it like a, like a school of fish that's swimming in the water, completely oblivious to the fact that a fisherman has just thrown out his net. And in the blink of an eye, the net drops. One of the fish is caught and his life is over. Meanwhile, there's another fish inches away that escapes the net and swims on. Or he says it's like, it's like a flock of birds hopping around on the ground looking for food, unaware that there's a snare that a hunter has set. And a dozen of them are ha- hopping all around the snare, but it's one bird that happens to land in the snare. He's caught. Life's over. All the other birds fly away. Solomon's saying that's how death comes. So often comes out of nowhere. You're you're swimming along and then life turns upside down. And there's nothing you and I can do to insulate ourselves from the unpredictability of life. Go back to verse 3. Solomon says, This is an evil in all that's done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Do you, you see how Solomon's describing that this is like the consequences of Genesis 3 in a nutshell? Solomon told us a few chapters ago that God made man upright. God put us in this world that was perfectly tuned to meet our needs. But when mankind sinned against God, everything got broken. Everything got thrown out of sync. And the primary consequence is death. We're now in a world where we're all going to die, where everything around us dies, the wages of sin, Romans 6 says, is death. But do you notice how he says in that verse 3? that our problem isn't just all the issues out there. It's not just death and the broken world. How does Solomon describe our own hearts in verse 3? He says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. So here's where we are now. We're in a world that is broken, and we have hearts that are bent away from God. So we need God to fix our world, and the promise of the Bible is one day He will do that. He's going to make all things new. We not only need God to fix our world, we need God to fix our hearts. We need God to forgive us for our sins. We need God to recalibrate our hearts toward Him. And that's what He does in salvation, right? It's the promise of the new covenant in the Old Testament. That not only will He wipe away their sins, but He'll come and He'll write His law on our hearts and He'll give us a new spirit. So we live with the promise One day God's going to make everything in the world new. But right now through Christ, He makes us new. He forgives us. He makes us new creations. Then look at His description of death in verses 4-6. through But to Him who is joined to all the living, there's hope. For a living dogs better than a dead lion. For the living know that they'll die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward for the memory of them's forgotten, and their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. He's just talking here about the finality of death. Once you die, your time here is over. That's why Solomon says, uh, a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's an unusual phrase. But remember, they didn't view dogs the way we do. They didn't knit sweaters for their dogs. They viewed dogs as scoundrels, mongrels. So whereas lions were revered, dogs were despised. Yet, Solomon says, it's better to be a dog that's alive than a lion that's dead. Or to maybe translate it to the human realm. Solomon's saying it's better to be the lowest pauper living than to be the most regal king in the world lying in a coffin. Because as long as you're alive, he says at the beginning of verse 4, as long as you're alive, there's hope. There's still time to turn back to God. As long as you're alive, there's still time to repent. There's still time to do something with your life that matters. But if you die apart from God, hope dies with you. Now one of the things this helps with is this sort of eviscerates the sentimental view of death that is so often embraced by society. It's been said that we're in a culture that believes in justification by death it doesn't matter who you are. Once you die, well, he's gone on to a better place. No, not not necessarily. There there are lots of folks who die, and this life is the best that they'll ever know. Because if you die apart from your faith in Jesus, death is not a a peaceful transition into glory. If you die apart from your faith in Jesus, death is the beginning of eternal judgment. Read the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. When the rich man died, he, he did not peacefully transition to glory he dies and the next moment he is begging for one second's relief from his misery solomon's saying live this day aware that this life is when you have hope this life is when you can do this life is when you can repent this life is when you can do something that matters for the glory of god so make sure you don't die Hoping that you'll stand before God and your own merit will be enough. Make sure sure you're not hoping you'll die and God will accept you because of how good you've been. Let me just go and answer that question for you. You have not been good enough. Your merit will not ever be enough. You and I have broken God's law and deserve God's wrath. But there is one who has done enough. There's one who has perfectly met every demand of the law. And not only that, but went to the cross to take the penalty for our failures. And your only hope is to be found hidden in Him on that day. Your only hope is to repent and turn to Christ. But In this life only, there is hope. So that's looking toward death. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Here's the fourth and final point. Number four. Rejoice in life. Verses 7 and 8. You'll hear similar themes to what I started the sermon with. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack No oil. Now get get how all this pulls together. Yes, death is looming. Yes, life is unpredictable. But God is in control. And so Solomon says, go. Do you see that first word in verse 7? Go. It's like a wake-up call. Stop moping. Stop feeling sorry for yourself all the time. Get up and enjoy the life God's given you. That. That's such an important point because there are so many folks who have this warped view of God that thinks God's main goal in this world is to keep anybody from ever having too much fun. God's main goal is to make sure that everybody stays somber and austere. But that is not the God of Scripture. The psalmist says of God, in your presence is fullness of joy. And you notice how often in Ecclesiastes we're actually commanded to enjoy life. So Solomon says, eat your bread and drink your wine. Bread and wine were staples in their diet. They're having bread and wine with every meal. And so Solomon is saying, enjoy your food to the glory of God. Eat your meals with a grateful heart. Thank God for the way He's meeting your needs. Think of how good God is. God didn't just give us appetites. We want food, we got to keep the machine fed. He didn't just give us appetites. He gave us taste, taste buds. So we don't just eat and want food. We can enjoy it. So he says, eat your food with joy. Eat food and drink with a merry heart. He says, put on your white robes. And put oil on your head. It's like he's saying, fix yourself up a little bit. Life isn't a funeral march. Put on some nice clothes and Fix yourself up from time to time. It's not a funeral march. It's more like a wedding feast. Enjoy it. And enjoy the company you get to have those meals with. Through Jesus, God has accepted us. What in the world do we have to be so miserable about? You know, sometimes people have the idea that, man, the highest level of Christianity is to be be like a monk. If you can become a monk where you just... Uh, deny yourself of any enjoyment and deny yourself of any pleasure. That's real spirituality. Not so. God put us in a world filled with things precisely for us to enjoy to His glory. Listen to the way Paul says it to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. For every creature, or creation it could say, for every creation of God is good, And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Of course, this isn't isn't in odds with God's law. God gives us commands about how we're to live. We're told that part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We know that God has called us as His people to a life of holiness. But listen, a holy life is not a miserable life. We have to be careful not to live like the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Do you remember how they acted? There were very clear commands God had given Israel about what they were to do and what they were not to do. But then the religious leaders came along and added all of these layers of extra laws on top of it. So if God said, don't do this, well, they would say, well, let's build a fence way out here and say, don't do any of this stuff either. And so the whole religious life was, was about, well, how many steps can you walk on the Sabbath? I mean, it became this miserable, tedious slog. You you might have, you might have been raised in a Christian context that was like that, where the primary measures of godliness were these extra biblical rules. It was all about having the right haircut, and Christians would never play cards, and Christians would never go to a movie theater. But we don't need to add to what God said. Live within the boundaries of God's word. Don't violate your conscience. And within that, enjoy life to the glory of God. Verses 9 and 10. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which He's given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For that's your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you're going. You see what's happening in verse 9? In verse 9, we move from the kitchen to the bedroom. And He says, Don't, not only enjoy your meals, enjoy your wife. And if you don't, guys, that was the one chance you have to amen in every service. That's a good time to amen. Enjoy your food and enjoy your wife. Don't just endure it. Enjoy it. Marriage is a gift from God. Spend time together. Pursue one another. Enjoy one another. Make some babies. Enjoy your meals to the glory of God and enjoy your marriage to the glory of God. And he even says, enjoy your work to the glory of God. So whatever your hand finds to do, you might not be in your dream job. It might not be the job you envision. But whatever work you have to do, whether it's a job, whether it's a hobby, He says do it with all your might. Your time on this earth is over in a flash. So live your life with a passion. Don't just drudge through. Don't just shuffle through. Don't just pass the time. Live life to the glory of God. See life as a gift from God. Enjoy life to the glory of God. And, and do, you see, do you see how being connected to God, the point is, being connected to God changes how you view all these other parts of life. When you are rightly related to God through Jesus, it changes how you view your work. It changes how you view your marriage. It changes how you view your meals. It changes how you view Sunday afternoon lunch. It changes everything. It's it's the C.S. Lewis quote that I've given you so many times, you should have it memorized by now. But it's where C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I love that quote. He says, I believe... It's like believing the sun's come up. I know the sun's up not only because I see the sun, but because by the sun's light, I see everything else. And he's saying, that's how I believe in Christ. I know Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life. I've trusted in Him, but now, because of my relationship with Christ, I see everything else differently. Because of Christ, I see all of life in a brand new light. So, life is unpredictable. Death is coming, but God is in control. And through Jesus, death is infused with hope, but that's not all. And through Jesus, life is infused with joy. Trust in His sovereignty. Recognize the universality and unpredictability of death and live your life with joy to the glory of God. That's Ecclesiastes 9. Bow with me for a word of prayer. And as we always do, I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord there in your seat. It's always good to respond to God's Word in some way. So take a minute in your own heart and go to the Lord. Maybe you've been living your life rejecting God, living for yourself. And you've assumed because things are going well, well, that must mean God's okay with it. Here's Solomon Here's Solomon's call to you this morning. This life does not last forever. And when this life ends, hope of repentance ends. So turn to Christ. Call out to Him for mercy. Put your trust in what Jesus has done for you. And Christian, here's Solomon's command in verse 7. Go. Eat your bread with a merry heart. Enjoy your marriage. Fulfill your work and your hobbies with passion. God is good. Live life like you believe that. I'll give you a few minutes to go to the Lord in prayer and then I'll close this.